I am Kelly Brown Douglas and Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary. And I thank you again for joining us in our series of conversations coming from our 80th General Convention in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, I have the distinct honor of speaking with Julia Aliga Harris the newly elected president of the House of Deputies. Deputies selected President-elect Harris from the youngest, most diverse slate ever presented to the House for presidential election. And her election is historic in that she will be the first Latina to serve in this role. This also marks the first time in our church's history where we have two presiding officers who are indeed persons of color. First of all, thank you, President-elect Harris, for joining me in this conversation, and congratulations once again to your historic election. So, thank you so much for having me here, Dr. Brown-Douglas, and may I call you Kelly? Yes, please do. <laughs> if I may just even say that the series of sentences that you just said is all incredibly exciting. <laughs> and then you put them all together and it's, it, you can really feel the weight of the moment when you say them all together like that. It's amazing. Yeah, well, it is, it is amazing. And uh, it is a distinct moment in our church and uh, what a blessing. Uh, it is for all of us that you are the one that is elected to this role. So I want to start there. And, you know, it is amazing. And so I want to ask you, what does it say about our church or not that indeed in 2022, we have two persons of color who are the presiding officers in our church, the House of Deputies, and of course, our presiding uh, Bishop Michael Curry in the House of Bishops. Yes, I think that we are really at a pivotal moment in the time of our church right now, of the Episcopal Church. We have historically been the church of uh, colonialism, colonizers, the church of empire, the church of the elite, especially the American elite, the founding fathers were Episcopalian. And now hundreds of years later, we're at a point in society where we're starting to ask questions about our past, about racial equity. But I think even more so in the Episcopal church, we are really now claiming, hey, we need to take up these serious, important, gospel issues and not only are we saying that with words like what we've been doing for decades we want to do racial reconciliation everyone should do anti-racism training which are all fantastic things but we are now starting to value embodied representation and leadership that people who are people of color people who have intersecting identities bring something new to the table by virtue of their, their lived experiences, the embodied representation that they have. And I think that that is taking us even beyond what we're seeing in society. I think that we are finally 
at this pivotal tipping point in the Episcopal Church where we are, are really living into the things that we've been talking about for so long with leaders like you, Kelly, with, well. with leaders like you paving the way. And, and and you and so now I like what you say here. You know we've moved uh, perhaps from words right to talking mm -hmm. about the importance of diversity if for mm -hmm. a church that really isn't that diverse. And That's so right, we're still overnight as a as a church denomination. We're still well over ninety percent white church, which makes this even more significant that uh, <laughs> we are being led for the moment by two persons of of color. Uh, but I like how you talk about embodied representation. So now tell me this, Julia, if I may, how do we move from just representation mm. to it really making a difference, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a difference between being representational and that embodied presence making a difference in terms of the priorities and the agenda and the way in which the church tries to live into being church. How, how do yeah. you, how, how, will, how can we make a difference? I want to give you an example, a recent example of this. And I serve also up until, until a few days from now, I will serve uh, on executive council as a chair of a joint standing committee, Mission Within. And on executive council, we have two indigenous women who serve on executive council, Angela Goodhouse mm -hmm. and Cornelia Eaton. And Angela Goodhouse is, uh, we are on the same committee together. When the news broke from the Anglican Church of Canada about the residential boarding school grave sites of children, Angela Goodhouse approached me and said, what are we gonna do about this as the Episcopal mm -hmm. Church? And she did that because of her family history, the, the history of her neighbors that she knows, that she, the stories that she grew up hearing that are a part of her DNA, that are part of her family stories. She felt compelled to bring that to executive council. I am not indigenous, but as a, as a Latina, as a Mexican American woman who grew up working class, I understand when I hear another woman of color say, hey, what are we gonna do about this? And I, I, I helped with a bunch of other people to bring this to executive council, where then we had listening sessions, where now we have movements on council yesterday. And then of course we had the presiding officers working group on truth telling, reckoning and healing and the indigenous boarding school legacy in the Episcopal church was a big piece of that. Right. And yesterday at general convention, we were able to hold space for deputies to tell their stories, one for the first time. So when you bring that embodied representation and that lived experience, the stories of your ancestors, your family stories, and you begin to ask questions of the system and you're able to do that from a leadership position, it changes the priorities of the organization and it changes the way the organization goes about it. We did not write a resolution that said, we maybe had this many boarding schools and we're so sorry. No, we've been listening and we're still listening. So good, so how, yes. <laughs> but how do we move, you know, we're, we are a church of uh, resolutions, right? <laughs> we, right? We like to, there you the all have legislation. 400 and some, right, 400 and some resolutions before you, right? 
Mm -hmm. And so we're a church of resolutions always have been. And oftentimes those turn in on ourselves. You know, we're doing things to, we're listening and people are telling their stories in the house of bishops. I mean, I was, I'm on the theological commission and, you know, we did a big report and I guess it's making its way around. So the house of bishops, but how do we move outward and show up as church? So what you have a long history, this is the work you've done. Uh, and so, uh, how do we begin to show up? What difference will it make that you and, and Bishop Curry and, and we're getting more embodied representation of people of color in these positions in our church on the executive council? So, but that means something to us as a denomination, but what's it gonna mean to us as a church and how we start showing up? Oh yeah, that is a great question. I think it also goes back to those, the priorities, how embodied representation affects the priorities of, of the church and the way that we go about doing it. So we also know that that means that we need to be going out and meeting people. And when, when presiding Bishop Curry is out on the steps of the Capitol doing a prayer mm -hmm. and he is the presiding Bishop of the Episcopal Church, that's a very different message just by him doing that prayer and being himself. And it tells other people that the Episcopal Church, and this is part of what I hope that my leadership as president of the House of Deputies will be able to do, is to tell people, hey, someone that look, let's start off with just what, what this person looks like. Mm -hmm. Someone that looks like me is in leadership at that church that I thought was for white people or for really rich people, or, you know, we have like, let's name some of these things, right? That's the church for doctors and lawyers and professors. That's not a church that's welcoming to me. And also I think that not only will those people begin to see that, but because of this, these priority changes and the ways that we go about doing things, I, in legislation, let's go back a little bit. We have two large resolutions, large in scope and uh, funds about evangelism to working class folks, to people of color, to LGBTQ communities, to people with disabilities. And if we're thinking, okay, we're gonna go ahead and throw a bunch of money to hopefully evangelize to those people, but we don't have, right now we have the priority, but we don't have the means, right? So you have people who understand this is how you talk to folks. And this is how we, this is what we have to offer as a church, because we're not just taking from people. We have something to offer them as the Episcopal Church. And this is how you welcome them in and engage these people. And I know this because I grew up this way, right? right. So it's not, oh, you know, it's not like we need to hire a marketing firm to figure out how we're going to uh, to evangelize to these folks. I'm making a joke. I'm making a little bit light yeah, of this. Yeah, but, but, exactly. but, you know, you have people in leadership that say, hey, I, I also grew up uh, not Episcopalian, right? So the things that drew me to the Episcopal Church. And, and we have those people, and now we're beginning to have them in leadership. And so they can help make those decisions, bring the resolutions to life. Yeah, so people can find themselves in our church. Yeah. Right. No, I, I like to let's bring these resolutions uh, to life. But, you know, and that hopefully it's not simply 
when we talk about evangelism, people finding themselves in our church, but our church finding itself where people are, where people mm -hmm. are living in these sort of what I like to call crucified realities and us living in the big mm -hmm. church and doing something of, about that. So I wanna ask you, what then do you see uh, as now you will soon assume the role of president of house of uh, deputies in what, two or three days now. Uh, uh, what then become your priorities? What, what mm -hmm. changes uh, do you hope to make and difference you hope to make as uh, president of the house of deputies? That's a good question. I have two and I think that they overlap significantly and they are to make our governance structures and our church more inclusive and accessible. So how can we go about ensuring that people feel included in our structures and our churches and that they feel a sense of belonging? Mm -hmm. And so that means going around the, the edges of our church, the people who feel marginalized and centering them, prioritizing them in everything that we do going forward. And it also overlaps significantly with making our structures more accessible and our churches more accessible. President of the House of Deputies is more focused on our governance and structures. So I, I'll, I'll focus there. Um, and that is where my passion lies. So it starts to talk, sound a little church nerdy, as I like to say. Yeah, I saw that you described yourself as a church geek, I guess. <laughs> right. And so it's about creating structures and leadership where people can actually participate in it. So not only are we, I would hope to have a, a, church, or a church with church structures that are more inclusive, but then part of being inclusive means you have to be accessible. So that means thinking about what are the barriers that are preventing people from participating in leadership. And sometimes there are things that have to do uh, with people who are differently abled and offering cart services and sign language and captioning and other times accessibility means, hey, if we want to have people who are, uh, you know, working nine to five jobs, maybe people who are hourly participate, hourly employees paid hourly, participating in leadership roles, then we have to change how we do these meetings so that they can be a part of it. Otherwise, we're going to just keep being the church of the lawyers and the professors who can take time off on a Tuesday morning to go to a meeting and participate in the leadership of the church. Yeah, or just be in our church, right? So that it seems to True. me, these, right, these issues of accessibility and evangelism and how we evangelize, what we consider evangelism, that these issues come together. Uh, and I uh, appreciate hearing you speak of systems and structures that, you know, it's not lack of interest, uh, but there are, it's systemic and structural injustice, inequality. Uh, and so, so you've got a challenge uh, on your hands. So, <laughs> so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get you out on the last two things. What, as you say these things, and, and you come as a very active lay minister, so speak, right? Mm. Uh, not ordained to the diaconate or, or the priesthood, and perhaps one of, and, and good, and, uh, uh, and one of the things that I think our church has long 
uh, ignored or not recognized and to now it's, uh, uh, it's suffering for it is the power of lay ministries mm -hmm. uh, uh, and empowering lay ministries. And so I ask that question now to you from uh, the vantage point, from the perspective of a dean of a seminary. Mm. What do you think, Julia, has to, as you talk about access and structures and systems, is there a message that comes from you as the newly elect president of the House of Deputies to seminary deans uh, to help support the kind of work and changes that you see that have to be made uh, in our church and particularly in its governance structure? Oh, that is a very good question. I'm gonna give another less specific, another example. And that is, I live in the Diocese of Oklahoma. And we have a lot of rural churches and rural communities. And what we see is in some of the outlying rural areas in Oklahoma, we have one priest that has to move around from one congregation to another. And this happens all over the country where we are seeing more and more churches who cannot afford a full-time clergy. Maybe they have to share clergy. And most of their leadership is lay leadership. This is increasing across the Episcopal Church, more and more lay leadership and part-time clergy, shared clergy, bivocational clergy. And so they are running these small congregations, lay people, lay leaders are running small congregations all across our church. And just like in the Diocese of Oklahoma, and they do, there is still this idea where they are not seeing themselves as the leaders, as the ministers of the church, because that is something that is for clergy. And yet they're the ones upholding and being the gospel on the ground in their communities and living it out where they're at in these rural areas. So what I would like to see from seminary deans and maybe you know other types of uh, 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 educational, uh, the, I'm thinking of the Iona Collaborative and those types of things. These leaders, these lay leaders could use some and desire to have some training and capacity building to be able to better do what they're already doing. They don't feel a call to ordained ministry. For me, I very much feel called to lay leadership and having some capacity to be able to do ministry, to be able to understand what it is to have shared partnerships with other congregations. Maybe what is it if we have a church that does uh, morning prayer and uh, an occasional Eucharist, but how do I, as a church leader, as a lay person, engage the gospel and run this church in a way that is outside of the one rector one church model that we've had for so long. So I would love to see, and I know that there's some of that going on, more <laughs> training of lay leaders from uh, institutions that have been doing this for such a long time. No, I think that that's right. And, and to begin to really focus on issues of formation uh, as uh, opposed to simply focusing on 
granting of degrees, right? And yes. so ministerial formation. So I promised you uh, two questions and I get you out. And this, this last question, you guys are in Baltimore City. Yes. Right? What is it that you will take away from being in Baltimore City uh, in terms of what it means and how it challenges us to live into our ministries, to live into what it means to be church? Mm -hmm. And what's the challenge of Baltimore mm -hmm. for our church so that it's simply not staying behind those walls of the convention center, but listening to Baltimore. Mm. What are you hearing? We had, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware, but I don't know if you know. Yes. The we had a couple of uh, blocks away from the convention center the other day. Uh, there was some. There was a shooting and, and gun violence, and, and a person died. My and lives right down there so yes <laughs> oh my gosh okay I, and i thought well how do i describe this and but this is happening while we are here for general convention and we are the episcopal church and so it, it was just an incredibly amazing thing to have been able to have the bishops united against gun violence be able to come together and mobilize and help lead a procession to that spot where that person died of gun violence and, and give the lament, a public lament for what is going on. And it was extremely stirring and beautiful. And we're very good at liturgy and, and we're very good at, at uh, being able to have those presence in those moments. And that was fantastic. And what I also hope is, is two other things is that one, that we as Episcopalians remember that we did that and bring it back with us to all the places that we came from. Because what we know is, is that gun violence is an, is an epidemic everywhere in this country. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to do something about what we're seeing when it comes to gun violence in this country in our home areas. And then also at the same time to say Baltimore, Maryland, has God is living in Baltimore, Maryland, and there is so much going on and so many good things to uplift at the same time, because that's a lot of what we see when we see Jesus actually happening in the world is that you have to hold the, the really ugly with the very beautiful at the same time. And you have to find a way through that so that other people can find beauty in suffering. And so I hope that that's something that we celebrate here in Baltimore as we celebrate the city of Baltimore, but as we go back to see what we can, how we can change policies around gun violence, what we can do in our home areas, that we also tell ourselves what is going on in our home areas that is both beautiful and that is causing suffering and be the change in our home areas, that we don't just leave it here in Baltimore. Thank you so much for your words, your witness, and of course, your time. And President-elect Julia Ayala Harris, I am looking forward to your term and terms to come. 
as president of our House of Deputies and look forward to working with you uh, during your time as president of our House of Deputies. We are blessed. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas. This has been a real honor to talk with you. In our second interview, I am talking with the CEO of THREAD, Sarah Heminger. THREAD supports high school students by harnessing the power of relationships to create a new social fabric of diverse individuals deeply engaged with young people who face the most significant opportunity and achievement gaps. I have been for a long time so very impressed with the work of THREAD. And Sarah helps us to understand the stakes that many of the young people in our most underserved communities face. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I have. I want to thank you again, uh, Sarah, for being with us today. And of course, we have in conversation Sarah Hemminger, who is the co-founder and CEO of Thread. Thanks for being with me in this conversation today. Thank you for including me and including Thread. Well, of course. And let me just jump right in. Tell us about Thread. Well, Thread is really a community of people who are of all ages, races, religion, uh, lived experience, doing life together. Um, we're a group of people who come together to get to know ourselves better and to be able to really build bonds with, with others in ways um, that allow us to all live out our purpose. Yeah, so I first became acquainted with Thread and with your work, oh, so many years ago, perhaps uh, five, six years ago, I can't remember, but when I was teaching at Goucher. And one of the things that immediately impressed me about your work was this notion of threads or threads pulling together a social fabric that would serve as wraparound services uh, to the children uh, and their families that you serve. And so that it takes us beyond this sort of drop-in charity model uh, to a model that actually provides the support that is needed for kids who have uh, otherwise, uh, will, who come from challenging circumstances and can otherwise be ignored. Can you tell us about that and how threat functions? Yeah, so, you know, structural racism has over hundreds of years put in place very intentionally, um, not just systems, but active processes and practices that have um, kept us apart from one another. And um, in ways that have been detrimental to everyone's physical health, mental health, emotional well-being, and um, disproportionately so to um, folks like young people in Thread who um, the barriers that have been put up have had um, just an, an enormous impact on their lives. So the way we kind of bring people together in order to do life together is we enroll high school freshmen who are academically in the bottom 25% of their class. So they are extraordinary human beings. Um, they're just in very extraordinary situations and circumstances often that have um, made it difficult to focus on their academic success. And then once they're in thread, um, 
the most important thing is that we we never unenroll someone. So when you're trying to build family, when you're trying to knit together a community, there has to be a permanence to it. And so young people uh, are formally with us for 10 years. So all of high school, six years after. And during that time, there's a group of up to four adults who um, are really there to become part of that young person's life and vice versa. So um, initially the relationship, when we think about equity in a relationship, mm-hmm. um, it's on that adult to show up in a sincere and reliable way. Um, so if an adult says they're going to give a young person a ride to school or support them after school with doing their homework or take them to an O's game, um, it's the adult, it's, it's on the adult to build that trust. But over time, what happens is um, we find that the key to building these sticky relationships is that um, we engage in what we call the thread engagement process. So first you connect, um, then you set goals, identify barriers, you work through barriers, and then you achieve the goals and you kind of go through that cycle over and over. And what happens is that strengthens the relationship. But the key to it really is when you set the goals, they have to be bi-directional goals. So it's not, oh, you know, young person wants to uh, graduate from high school. It's Maybe that young person wants to graduate from high school and um, maybe I'm struggling at my job and I'm trying to find ways to show up um, for my colleagues, right? right? And so we both have a goal. And then the question is, what are the barriers that we're each encountering and how do we um, support one another in overcoming those barriers? And what's important about that, is when you actually go through that process with another human being, for our young people, you go from an orientation of, you matter to me, you matter enough for me to show up consistently and reliably to you not just matter, but I need you. And that mm-hmm. I need you is a fundamentally different orientation. Um, and, and I, and I think in it's most like innate sense and acknowledgement of someone's humanity, because I think we all need each other and each of us has something to give and each of us has something we need to learn, but it's in coming together um, with with others, especially across lines of difference, who have had a different lived experience that help you kind of see the world in a more full way. No, I, I love this this model of relationships so that it's simply not uh, people coming in and treating someone like these young people as an object of, of, of their charity or something, but it's about developing relationships of shared humanity, mutuality, and, and, and respect. And so that we discover that we need one another uh, in, a, in a very real sense. I also want to stick with sort of what the sort of some of the details of sort of that relationship a uh, little bit, because uh, either I've heard you say it or it was on uh, your website. Uh, either way, this notion that uh, Thread tries to provide for the youth that are a part of Thread, uh, the children, if you will, of, of Thread, that which we would want to provide for our own children. Can you speak about that a, a, a little bit? So, and you've, you know, if a child needs a ride to school, but can you speak to that? I mean, I think that's what it means to be family. So, you know, mm-hmm. what I want for my daughter, Evie, um, is for her not only to hit certain milestones in life, but I want her to feel 
like she understands how to fully leverage her skills and engage in things that she's passionate about to actually feel like she's living with a clear purpose. And that is the exact same thing I want for every young person in Thread and for their children and their children's children is it's not enough. It's such a low bar to say, well, we want someone to graduate from high school. Of course we want that. But what we really want is for them we want liberation. It's, mm -hmm. it's having all of the um, internal and external resources necessary to live the life that you want to live. Um, and just acknowledging that while our, our young people in Thread are just geniuses, the structural barriers are very real and That's we run right. into them every day. Um, and whether it's, you know, the healthcare system, the justice system, the education system, um, it is hard to unsee once you see even a little bit just how mm. differently um, those systems treat our young people um, and their families and our community. And um, so it's important both to exist and to be able to thrive within those systems while dismantling them at the same time. Um, very well said. I often uh, think, Sarah, that, you know, if you don't have the basics to survive and you don't feel safe, then it's not that you uh, don't want to dream dreams. It's almost impossible to dream dreams because you're just trying to make it. And one of the things that so impresses me about Threat is get that you try to provide those things, even not accepting the situation in which uh, young people are placed in, but while they're trying to navigate that situation, provide those supports, be it uh, a ride to school, be it helping their parents uh, stay in an, in an apartment or health resources, whatever resources are necessary to provide them with the kind of foundation uh, that they need to not simply survive, but to thrive and to be able to dream dreams for themselves. But, uh, which seems to me uh, is something that the church should be about. Uh, what, what the church is coming to Baltimore uh, you know, a church with a reputation well-earned for being a very wealthy white church. Uh, uh, what would you like the church to see and to know? What can the church learn from Thread? Well, I think that, um, you know, the norms that we found actually create the sticky relationships in, inside of Thread um, are things like getting comfortable being uncomfortable, mm. um, being okay with things not being perfect, um, understanding that a sense of urgency isn't always the right thing. Um, and so a lot of our norms inside of our community are very non-dominant norms. Um, and so I think that, um, the biggest challenge that that threat has as a community is I would imagine somewhat analogous to the church and that the biggest challenge to like the thread community thriving is the behaviors have to not only be taught and coached, they have to be modeled. So uh -huh. I'm constantly going through a process of interrogating 
trying to understand my own biases, right? We all have bias. It is based on our lived experience. Um, it's how our brains are hardwired. It's, it's do we try to understand that bias? Do we try to understand how it impacts how we engage with other people? Do we understand the impact that it has on other people? Um, and so I think the work of any institution is really the work of an individual because if all of the institutions are made up of individuals and policies are written by individuals and communities are made up of individuals. So for from our kind of first have to start with um, what is the change that needs to happen inside of each of us individually and that's a process that is never finished. Um, but it's contagious. I think what I like, mm -hmm. continue to be inspired by is, um, you know, I look inside in our community now and our alumni are, you know, my colleagues, they are the ones who through the pandemic have shown up at young people's homes and made sure people were okay. And they are on our board, like driving our strategic direction. Um, they're my closest friends. They're the people that I'm raising my daughter and, you know, my daughter and their children are growing up together like cousins. Um, mm. And so I think about like when I get tired or when I'm struggling to go through that next layer of like growth, which can be more than uncomfortable, I look to them. And I think probably the same is true within the church community. Um, you know, it's interesting to me about the past couple of years is that, you know, this idea of social isolation, like we've been, <laughs> we've been yeah. talking about it in thread for 18 years and yeah. our young people and their families and their families and their families and the families have talked about for 500 years. Right. <laughs> um, that social isolation has, has always been there. And so there's an inherent resilience that they have because it's been learned and practiced out of necessity. Um, and so looking for folks um, inside of the church that have that lived experience that means inherently they also have a, a very special depth and breadth of resilience then um, with which we, at least for us that that becomes the foundation of like our culture here. No, so very well said and and what I'm also what I also hear and what thread does and as I've mentioned uh, earlier is, a long-standing commitment, right? It's not, I like that once you're in the family, you're in the family. And and it's not this, when we think of the urgency of work, sometimes we go in and we come out. And Thread is there for 10 years. It's a long-standing commitment, which should uh, be the commitment of the church. Tell me just briefly, why 10 years? What 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 bought you? Because you're following these young people from ninth grade, which is what, about 14 or so, 14 or 15, through really young adulthood. I mean, we didn't start off with some master plan with some, mm -hmm. you know, deep evaluation and research that said 10 years. We just followed the breadcrumbs. <laughs> um, yeah. so it just became clear that like, a year wasn't enough and then two years and that like really if you wanted to have a deep and mutual relationship that that was going to take time um and now it's even beyond 10 years i mean yesterday we actually just welcomed students at three of our schools um into thread and it was surreal to be sitting there one of our staff members who's a, who's also a student alumni 
was the person welcoming the new students. And I thought to myself, this young person wasn't even born when I first met you. <laughs> like, you, you were a thought in God's eyes. So um, like, it's even more than 10 years. It's, it's actually re-knitting together the social fabric mm. in a way that's permanent and that the 10 years just gives you a jumping off point. Yeah, um, I like that. Not the end. It's just, it's just gets you sturdy enough <laughs> that you can, that you can, um, that you can build from there. But uh, yeah, trust no, me. I, no, I like that. So tell me, what, tell me about some of the alumni of Thread. What, to, what are they doing? Oh, I, well, I mean, if you watch on their social media, they're in Paris and they're in Greece and they're in Safari in South Africa. So they are, um, they're finding their way and they're exploring the world. Um, what's been really interesting is to see how in some odd way, the last two years, has, um, you know, we've seen a lot of our alumni really um, take off in terms of their careers, um, buying homes, having children, getting married. I mean, just all the things that right. come with life um, in the most beautiful of ways. Um, I just feel grateful that I've gotten to be you know, bear witness to so many of those, those moments. Um, and in so many respects, without the kind of uh, community and family and support that is threads, those dreams that they've had and have for themselves uh, might not have become possible. And, 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 and that's why this work is so important, which should be the work of all of us and certainly uh, should be the work of uh, a church that claims to be committed to a more just future for all. So what would be the thing that you hope the church would, that as they come here, not simply take away uh, from Baltimore and learning, but what would you hope they would leave or how they might be really present? I'll give you, um it's a silly analogy. So I, I was with my parents and my husband and my daughter on this cliff and we were watching the sunset hmm. and it was the most spectacular thing I had seen in nature ever. Hmm. And my daughter kept yelling, mom, the moon, the moon. And I said, Evie, it's, it's the sun. We're watching the sunset, not the moon. <laughs> she kept saying, insisting it's the moon, mom, gotta look at the moon. And she grabbed my arm and I turned around and there was the moon. Wow. Here we were on the same cliff within feet of one another, but we were facing different directions. And so I was seeing the sun and she mm. was seeing the moon. Mm. I think that like that is what happens in life all the time. We're just talking past one another. Mm. Um, instead of saying, wow, you see the moon, show me. Um, and let me show you the sun because it's really cool too. So I, I think if we just in each of our individual everyday interactions, like in the elevator with somebody or at a conference or um, in a meeting could just, when they say something we don't understand, come at it with like almost a childlike curiosity of, okay, that is 
that is what you're saying happened. I acknowledge that's your that's your experience. Help me understand it though, because I can't see the moon. I'm looking at the sun. Um, and so I think if we all just did that a little bit more and tried to get to a shared understanding, I just you know there's fundamentally don't like, I believe you to be able to see the full picture. You need the vantage point of all 360 degrees, and no single person can have that. So it's how you be part of a community that um, you can build that trust and share those vantage points and then try to piece it all together um, like as a, as a team. Um, but I think that starts in just individual interactions. And I found it humbling to realize that I missed it with my own daughter. <laughs> yeah. And- I love and trust and right. And I still missed it. So I can only imagine how many times I miss it every day in other interactions. And I just keep trying to do a better job listening and actually hearing and seeing the person who's in front of me um, and trying to see who they are. I love that story and uh, actually will carry that story uh, with me and how much we all miss it every day. And certainly uh, so too does Uh, that which causes itself church. Sarah, thank you for your time, but more importantly, thank you for the work of Thread. And it is work that we should all be doing uh, in our own way. And again, certainly uh, the church. So there's much to learn from you and from your work. So thank you. Thank you.